Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. It is the most wonderful time of the year, right? At least that's what the song says. I don't know what you think about that. Uh, But it is Christmas. Christmas time is here. We're in full swing the first week uh, of December. And so here at First Century, we're going to kick off a Christmas series called Gospel Christmas. So as you probably know, we have gone through the entire Bible this year, front to back chronologically. But you may have noticed that when we started the New Testament back in August, we skipped the beginning of the New Testament. So I pulled that out intentionally for our Christmas series. So we're going to look through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for our Christmas series, Gospel Christmas. These are the four biographies about Jesus from four different men with four different points of view, only two of whom actually were eyewitness followers and disciples of Jesus. One of them, Matthew, we'll talk about today. And we will go through, now what's interesting is only Matthew and Luke have a traditional Christmas story. And so next week and Christmas Eve are going to be interesting how we tie in Christmas to these gospels that don't mention the birth story at all. And so, but we're going to, we're going to make it happen. We're going to do that. And we're going to start today with the gospel of Matthew, the very beginning of the New Testament in this series, Gospel Christmas. And what we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter two are two responses. That's the main theme of our time together today is two responses. In Matthew 2, we have two very differing responses to the announcement of the birth of Jesus. And we're going to look at at those today. We're going to work through Matthew 2. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We're going to walk through it kind of verse by verse this morning and compare, again, two very different responses to the birth of Jesus. And along the way, we'll make, we'll make some analogies to our current culture because a lot of what's happening in the culture around this story, very similar to where we live now. And maybe even in your life, you will see yourself hopefully in one or the other of these responses to Jesus in your own life. So let's start in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll see kick off these two responses in this gospel Christmas. So it says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. So in these first three verses, we see the two differing responses that we're going to look at, Herod and the wise men. We're going to start with Herod's full response. There's several things that we'll look at that builds to what ends up being a really terrible time in the nation at the birth of Jesus from Herod's point of view. So the first part of Herod's response to this news about Jesus is he was deeply disturbed. Verse 3 says, when he heard the news, he was deeply disturbed. Now, Herod in Matthew chapter 1 historically is known as Herod the Great. So he's the, kind of the first in this line of Herod's, uh, these leaders. He's a Roman ruler over Judea. And by this time, he's ruled about 30 years or so in this region. So he's got a lot of power in this area. He's kind of a complicated figure. 
Uh, it depends on who you read about him. Of course, people that wrote favorably about him were doing so for a reason. And some people that wrote disfavorably about him are maybe trying to be a little bit more honest about this person, Herod. He's a bit complicated. So uh, his father actually was friendly with Julius Caesar. So we don't always think about Jesus and Julius Caesar. They were only separated by 40 or 50 years in their lifespan. They're like back to back in the terms of history. So Herod's father was friendly with Julius Caesar. And then Herod the Great is put is really cemented in power by Mark Antony after Caesar is assassinated. So he has these connections, these other powerful people from history. His biggest claim to fame in a positive light anyway is that he oversaw the rebuilding of the Jewish temple. So the temple that Jesus would have gone to would have been built by Herod the Great. It's Herod, known as Herod's Temple, or the Second Temple. So that's what is kind of his positive claim to fame uh, in history. But like many powerful people in the ancient world, he was very paranoid. He's always looking around for who's trying to replace him, who's trying to poison his dinner, you know, who's, try, who's got like a, somebody on the roof over there with, with some kind of bow and arrow to put it through his forehead. Like he's very paranoid as a person, as a leader. So much so that much like we talked about a few weeks ago, Nero, very similar paranoia in both of these men because Herod also had his mother-in-law and two brothers assassinated because he thought they were, they were plotting against him. So he kills his own family members. So that kind of sets us up for where we're going to go with Herod. The other part of Herod religiously is that although he, as we'll talk about later, was raised Jewish, he was never really accepted by the Jewish people and leaders of the region. We'll get to more specifically why later on. But times were very tense under his leadership for that reason. There's always this underlying sort of unease with him. They don't know if they can trust him. They don't know how Jewish he really is. They think he's probably more Roman than Jewish. They were probably right. And so that's where he gets, that, that's sort of the background to get you into why Herod would have reacted this way. As sad as that may seem, that he was deeply disturbed about the birth of Jesus, this is the background in which Herod lives. He's a very paranoid, very nervous, very power-hungry leader. So when he hears these people from hundreds of miles away have come to worship the king of the Jews, and they're not worshiping him, that's a problem for Herod. So he's immediately going to find, figure out, okay, what is going on? And so he's deeply disturbed by this news. So there's a lot for him to lose. That's really why he reacts in this way. It's why he's disturbed. These Eastern outsiders have heard this news, and they're part, we'll get to them in a minute, but they're quoting Jewish scriptures to really see, they think that this baby is really a big deal, like cosmically a big deal, religiously a big deal, and they're calling him king of the Jews, but that's who Herod is, so this is a problem. He's deeply concerned and disturbed by this news. Let's move on in, in the rest of Matthew 2 a little bit more here and see the, more of his reaction, his response. We'll pick it up at verse number 4. So it says, Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? So the wise men come and say the king of the Jews, somehow he equates that to Messiah. He, he goes to that level for, for that reason. So here's what they say. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. So Herod goes from deeply disturbed to now he plots. 
Herod asks a bunch of questions to his people, and then he has a private meeting with the wise men to find out what they know, but he's not, doesn't seem genuinely interested in the information for the right reasons. He's not excited about the birth of this baby. He's not trying to connect his own spiritual dots here. He has a motive in mind, a very personal motive. He's trying to make a plan. Because he's disturbed, his thought goes to, what do I do about this? How do I fix this problem? How do I eliminate this threat? He's trying to gain intel to make this plot. He wants to devise a plan that will oust his supposed competition. And in the, in the end, as he's talking with his people and the wise men, he determines, he finds out, oh, you're talking about a literal baby. So my competition is a baby. This should be really easy to fix, right? This shouldn't be a big deal. This should be no-brainer. We can take care of this. No big deal. But he's plotting. He's conspiring. He's trying to figure out what to do. And he knows that the child is no more than two years old. Based on the math and the traveling of the wise men uh, and the prophecies that he's trying to figure out, he's saying, so I've got like a toddler running around in a diaper who's trying to take me off the throne. I'm not too intimidated by that, but it still is a problem that I'm going to have to take care of. So he plots because he's deeply disturbed. Here's the next verse as we continue on Herod's response to the birth of Jesus. Matthew 2, verse 8. Then he told them, the wise men, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. Now, we don't always, maybe, if, if you know how the story goes after this, you know what's coming, but it doesn't take a genius to figure out he's probably not being genuine here. Again, is a king really going to seek out a rival to worship them? Probably not. Is especially this king, Herod, who kills his own family because he's so paranoid and power-hungry, do you think that this king is going to search out a rival to really worship him? Probably not. So for Herod, he's all about false worship. And really for Herod, as we get into more of his personal life, just for a second, this is a deeper issue for him, but it's also a growing issue for the whole nation of Israel at this time in history. So let's start with Herod. So again, his ancestors, maybe two or three generations before him, converted somewhere along the line to Judaism. And so he was raised Jewish. But the, the, as we mentioned before, the reason, the main reason he's not really accepted by the Jewish leaders and officials and people is because they saw him use his faith. He didn't really have as much of a belief on it. It was a pawn that he used politically. Whenever he could use it for his own sake, he would. Whenever he needed to be more Jewish, he would be Jewish. Whenever he wanted to gain some clout, he would rebuild the temple, even though it was really all about him as far as he was concerned. And he's more buddy-buddy, rubbing shoulders with the Roman authorities. That's more his concern, his power, position politically, than his religious faith seemed to be. So that's why there was always this religious tension with Herod. He was simply political leverage. But to be fair to Herod, the entire nation of Israel is kind of in this spiritual slump of their own. So as you finish the Old Testament as we have it, to this point in time is about 400 years where there's been no word from God. 
No prophet has arisen to give a thus says the Lord kind of statement. There's been very sketchy, very uh, scattered leadership in the nation of Israel. And at the same time, geopolitically, you have the Greek Empire kind of taking over the region. And then you have the Romans just before this time officially become the Roman Empire. And so Israel's kind of caught in all of this stuff. And so their faith has sort of taken a back seat. Because when you read the birth stories uh, about Jesus, the Christmas stories, it's a very simple, quiet type of thing. You would think if this nation has waited for this Messiah for thousands of years and there's an inkling that he's been born, there's going to be national celebration and excitement. But there's not. There's not really much of a spiritual appetite for what has happened here in Matthew chapter 2 and also in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. There's not much of an appetite for this. It's more about the political thing for them, how we can survive in the empire, how we can thrive in this sort of culture that we are in. And so the same thing that affected here on a personal level is affecting Israel on a national level. It makes me think of Isaiah 29, 13, where God through Isaiah says uh, that my people worship with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So the people would go through the tradition, they would go through the ritual, they would do the sacrifices at the temple, and they would do all these things, but it's, it's not quite, doesn't seem to quite be as genuine even for them as it maybe should have been. And I think in many ways, this is a really good picture of where we are in our culture. If you look and you have any sort of scope on even fairly recent history in our country, you would have to come to the conclusion that we are in the least religious, uh, least spiritual era of our country ever. I mean, it would have started up here somewhere, and it's just kind of steady decline, and now we're dropping off the cliff here, so it seems. So we are much in the same way uh, as Israel might have been around the time of Jesus, which makes me think of this question to wrestle with for just a second. If Jesus were to be born in our culture right now, would we have much of a different response than the nation of Israel did 2,000 years ago? Probably not. Would anyone really care? Would it make front page news? Would anyone even know what that means? Probably not. So we find ourselves sort of in the same slumber, the same slump that Israel and Herod found themselves in. And so it might be good for us to try to think about how we can impact the culture in a way that Herod did not, in a way that it seemed like Jesus had to do. Now, I'm not saying that, uh, no, I'm not going to even go there. But anyway, the question still remains. Uh, the filter is working today, guys, all right? So th the question, though, remains, would we care if Jesus were born in our culture today, or are we too busy with other things? Are we too politically minded instead of religiously minded? It's our spiritual sort of bank sort of running dry. So maybe this Christmas we can renew that sort of feeling that we need to have, especially this time of year, to avoid false worship. And then here's, here's the last thing. The last thing that ends up with Herod, his response leads to destruction. So Matthew 2, verse 12, uh, after the wise men leave, they visit Jesus, and then we'll get to them in a minute. And then it says this, when it was time to leave the wise men, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Now skip down to Matthew 2, verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. 
Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. So because of Herod's disturbance, because of his failed plot to seek out this one threat, and because of his false worship really of himself, the result was destruction. The murder of dozens, if not more, young boys in his own kingdom. So I'm sure the people at this time, when they, this is going to make the news. When blood's running through the streets of two-year-olds and the king has, has sanctioned this activity, he's commanded this to be done. When soldiers are going in, in and out of every house, checking and seeing, looking in drawers, looking in cupboards, trying to find any two-year-old or under because the king wants them all dead, it's going to make the people probably think of Exodus chapter 1 a little bit. So when their people, their ancestors were in slavery in Egypt, the Pharaoh did a very similar thing. There's too many young, strong Hebrew slaves. If they outnumber us, they're going to overtake us. So he slaughtered an entire generation of young Hebrew boys. But this is worse than Exodus 1. It's not a foreign power that you're enslaved under who's killing the children. It's your own king who's executing young children. So that, that's how far Herod went. That's how far his paranoia would go, killing innocent young children for his own personal political gain. Herod's reluctance and resistance to Jesus led to destruction and death. This was the sad result of Herod's response to Jesus. Now, on a lighter note, let's look at the second response. There's a much better response to Jesus than Herod's response that we will spend the rest of our time on, and that's the response of the wise men. So let's go back to the beginning just, for, just to know where we are in the story. Matthew 2, 1 and 2, we'll read it again. So it says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. So Herod's initial response was to be deeply disturbed by this news, but on the other hand, the wise men are deeply curious about this news. They're not deeply disturbed, they're deeply curious. Now, we don't know a lot about the wise men, so we're going to have to fill in some gaps and make some assumptions here, but here's what we do know about them. We know they're from the east, most likely Persia, that sort of region. They're a few hundred miles away from Jerusalem when they travel uh, to when they follow the star that we'll talk about this morning. We know that they were wealthy and powerful. As we'll see later, they brought expensive gifts to give to this newborn king. And then you have the song, you know, We Three Kings. Uh, we don't know if they were actually literally royal, but we know that they were filthy rich. If you can, if you can take off of work for this long to make like a four or five month trip, okay, or longer, and if you have these expensive gifts that they're going to give to Jesus, you're loaded, okay? You are at the top of the top, cream of the crop, okay? So we know this about them. So what we also know is that they are more similar to Herod than we might assume because if they are in any kind of position of political power, which is, we can maybe say that that's possible, they would also have a lot to lose. So if they have positions of power, if they are kings or even regents of, of smaller areas, and there's a king in what used to be the powerhouse of the region who's been born, and it's been prophesied about, if this is that big of a deal, they also have a lot to lose with the birth of this baby. But their response could not be more different than Herod's response, which I think is fascinating. And we'll talk more about that here in just a few minutes. Their response is different. It's curious. 
They're not threatened by this news. They're not disturbed by this news. They don't dismiss this as, oh, it's nothing. It doesn't have anything to do with us, so we don't care. But they wanted to know more. They saw this star. They obviously study the stars. This is unique to them. Okay, what does this mean? And so they look and they study and they research and they do all of this just for more information because it piques their curiosity. And I wish that our current society was this way when it comes to faith, but it's not. The Bible is the best-selling book of all time. I mean, millions and millions and millions and millions of copies of this one book outsells any other book by far. Jesus is the most, I would say, the most famous person who ever existed, right? I mean, he literally split time in half. That's a big deal. Okay, I know they're trying to change B.C. to B.C.E., and I'm like, that just shows the decay of our culture. We can't even acknowledge that Jesus was so important that we changed the calendar for him. We've got to make it say something else now. So that's, a, that's sort of an indictment of where we are right now. But his teachings, his stories endure to this day. He's a pretty big deal, we could say. Christianity has existed and grown for over 2,000 years. It is by far and away in the world today the largest religion on the face of the planet. And yet, with all that being said, it doesn't pique the curiosity of our culture really at all. They know these things, like they know the Bible is a best-selling book, and they know that Christianity has been around for a while, and it's a big religion, it's a mainstream religion, but most people outside of it just don't have any curiosity at all. They don't care. They don't ask questions. They don't explore the claims of Jesus. Okay, if this guy was such a big deal, he's so important. If he's changed the world, maybe I should at least look at what he had to say. Our culture doesn't want to do that. They refuse to do that. But I pray that your level of knowledge of Jesus would pique your own curiosity. That even if you know a lot about him, you would long to know more. That even if you're not sure, even if you believe any of this, that your curiosity would kind of lead you to ask some basic questions, lead you to ask some people some things, lead you to try to figure out for yourself what your response to Jesus might be and not just throw him off and cast him aside. So I want us to have sort of the heart of the wise men here that we would have this deep curiosity about who Jesus is. There's a second thing that we see here in these first two verses about the wise men, and that is that they prepared. So Herod plotted against Jesus, but they prepared for him, okay? Their curiosity affected them so much that they embarked on this weeks-long, maybe months-long journey from the east to follow the star to try to get to where they wanted to go. Now, think about the last time that you went on a road trip or a vacation, or if you haven't ever been on one, think about what it would take to prepare for a road trip, okay? You've got to make checklists. You've got to make sure you pack the right kind of clothes. You've got to make sure that you've got all, all the snacks in the car for the kids. If you're taking kids, why would you take kids on a road trip? But, you know, some of us have done that. Um, you're probably going to have an itinerary based on where you're going. We've got to go see this. We've got to go experience that. We've got to do this while we're there because we're going to never come back here again maybe. So you've got to plan and prepare for anywhere you go. Maybe if you're gone for a while, you've got to forward your mail, you know, so that it doesn't end up all over the street when it's full. You know, you're gone for a couple weeks or longer. Uh, you've got to set up your voicemail or your email to take care of while you're gone. You've got to have somebody to watch your pets for you while you're out of town. So there's so much planning into a road trip. And these men are no different. They prepared for Jesus. They had to have enough food for months in the desert. They had to track the star patterns to find out where they're going. They had to make sure their coordinates were right. They had to choose the right people to join them on their caravan. They had to make sure everything was good back home while they're gone for months on end. 
And we know that they prepared because they brought gifts with them. They know that at the end of this journey, we assume we're going to meet a king of some kind, some kind of royalty. We can't come empty-handed, so they prepared by bringing gifts that we'll talk about here in just a minute. So unlike Herod, their preparation was not a plot. They're not trying to come against him. They have no ulterior motive. They, they don't have an agenda. They just know that something has happened, and we're curious about it, so we're going to prepare ourselves to find out more, and they went on this long journey. So let's look at their journey here in Matthew 2 again, and we'll see the next part of their response. Pick it up at Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. So after this interview, after they talked to Herod privately, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. So it's kind of a bonus one here, but it doesn't fit with Herod's response, but it's the maybe the most important one so far, is that there was divine guidance involved with the wise men. Herod's plot against the child were for his own reasons, for his own benefit. But the wise men received divine guidance. They were willing to be led by this star, by this maybe force. They didn't really, they're, they're probably not Jewish. They're from the East. They're, they're, they don't believe in the same religion at all. And yet something in them knew we've got to go. We've got to follow wherever this star takes us. They were traveling in a general direction with an idea of what they might be headed into, but ultimately it was divine guidance that led them where they were going. And again, I think the dichotomy between Herod and the wise men here stands out, at least to me, so significantly. Because Herod is an insider, right? He's a leader of the Jewish people, and this event happens right under his nose, and he has no idea it's happened. He, of all people, should know the scriptures. He should be able to see the signs of the times. He should have seen the star. He should have noticed it, but he missed it. Yet on the other hand, these outsiders from hundreds of miles away saw something that was barely visible, and they knew there was significance to it. It seems the opposite should be true, but that's how this played out. The insider missed what was right there. The outsider saw what was barely visible from hundreds of miles away. So here's what that means for us. Just a few thoughts to consider about divine guidance for your life. God will appear to those who are open. God will divinely guide those who are willing to be led. So the question is, are you open to what God may want to do in your life and then through your life? Do you have the heart of the wise men? And are you willing to be led by God? Jeremiah 29, 13, God says, If you seek me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. God wants to be found. He wants to be pursued. And it, he, he wants us to follow him. So a couple of questions, more questions to consider here about divine guidance. Here's the first one. Are you in need of direction? Maybe you have a, you're kind of lost, you're kind of confused, maybe you've got a lot of big decisions to make, maybe you're in a big transition period, you're like, I need direction. So my encouragement is, follow the example of the wise men and look up. Don't look down, don't look back, don't look inward to yourself, look up. If you're in need of direction, look up. Again, the wise men didn't quite know exactly where they were going. 
Their GPS system is this bright light in the sky. That's it. They have no other sense of direction. They have no other agenda. They don't know that they're going to end up in Jerusalem or Bethlehem or where they're going to end up. And yet they follow the star as it led them. God, through the star, led them to where they needed to go. And the result of that, I love verse 10 that we read, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. The result of their guidance was joy. So if God is guiding your path, if God is guiding your life, you can experience true and lasting joy. Doesn't mean everything's going to work out how you think it will or how you want it to, or that you're even going to know where you're going most of the time, just like the wise men. You don't know what's in front of you. You don't know what's next. You don't know what hurdles or obstacles might come in your way. You don't know if there's going to be this sand trap in the middle of the desert that you're going to have to guide your caravan around. You have no idea. But what I do know is that if you, as, the, as they saw the star, they were filled with joy. I know that as you're divinely led, your life can be filled with joy. 1 Peter 1.8 says we can have joy unspeakable and full of glory, joy that's inexpressible. I can't put my finger on why I just had the certainty. All I know is that I'm following God's leading, and that's enough. That's what joy is. Psalm 16.11 says that in your presence there is fullness of joy. So not fleeting happiness that will fade because of circumstance, not that things are fine, so I feel good, but then this happens and I'm frazzled. No, you can have joy that is full, fullness of joy, as you're divinely led by God, just like the wise men were led by this star. So, are you in need of direction? Look up. Are you in need of joy? Look up. Just like the wise men did. So here's, they come to near the end of their journey here, and here's what happens. Matthew 2, verse 11. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankenstein, and myrrh. Oh, wait. <laughs> gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So their response when they meet the king is true worship. Not false worship like Herod, true worship. When the, men, when the wise men came, they were prepared to give, prepared to worship. And these three gifts, they're famous. We know them all, but let's look at them for just a second. Gold, a precious metal. Frankincense, an expensive spice, a lot of times in this culture used in worship. And then myrrh is an expensive oil that is many times used for embalming. So the early church theologian Origen, he, he described these gifts this way. He said they gave gold as to a king, myrrh as to a mortal, frankincense as to a god. Now, were they intentionally, knowingly worshiping God in that moment? Probably not. Again, they're astrologers from far away. They're not Hebrews. They're not Jewish. They've, they've read the scriptures. They know what the scriptures say, but we have, we have little evidence to know that they, were, that they knew they were worshiping someone who was divine. They're worshiping the king of the Jews, which was maybe something totally different to them. We, maybe they were, but we don't know that, and I would assume probably not. Did they give these three gifts intentionally to just totally match what we know to be about Jesus 30-something years later? Probably not. I mean, they probably just brought expensive gifts fit for a king. But the wise men here are our examples of worship. And Romans 12 tells us how we worship Jesus. Paul says in Romans 12, 1, that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice as our spiritual act of worship. So the wise men here, uh, they worship Jesus the same way that we should. They simply gave, gave him what they had, 
and they gave him their best. That's all that worship is for us today when it comes to Jesus. Give him yourself, give him your best. Just like the little drummer boy, right? That's what that whole song really is about. Oh, he doesn't have these expensive gifts. He just got his rump-a-pum-pum. And so he's going to play his best for the king. That's all he's looking for is yourself and your best. That's true worship of Jesus is simply living your life for him every day. And I would say that's even better than gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Giving him your life, living it for him with him in mind as true worship is better than any expensive gift that we could otherwise give him. And ultimately, one last thing is the result of this response for the wise men is it results in life change. It's a bit of a reach here, but just bear with me for a second. After the wise men go back home, we don't know anything else about them. We know very little about them to begin with, but after, they, after Matthew 2.11, we don't know anything about them. Okay, so did they convert to Judaism after this moment? We don't know. Did they believe that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jewish people? We don't know. Did they live long enough to hear about Jesus, this baby growing up to being who he was? We don't know. Even if they had lived long enough, would they have connected the dots? Oh, that was the baby that we worshiped 30 years ago? We don't know if they would have connected those dots, right? But what we do know is that anyone who ever meets Jesus is never the same. We know that. You look at the rest of the life of Jesus. Anyone he came in contact with was changed in some way. They saw a miracle that affected them. They experienced a healing that changed their life. They heard the best, teach, the best teaching from the best teacher who ever lived. It would change their life in some way. So from the start, these wise men knew that there was something special about Jesus, so at least in some small way, their lives would never be the same. You could imagine something in their hearts, maybe with their kids or grandkids, they would have said, you know, there was this one, I wonder whatever happened to that baby that we worshipped. You know, there, there was something special about him. He had a halo over his head, you know, just like in all the paintings, you know, that kind of thing. That was kind of creepy, but it was, you know, they knew something was different about Jesus. And the power of the Christmas season is that that fact is still true today. That if you have met Jesus, your life is different. If you've really met him, he has impacted you in some life-changing way. And the great news about Christmas is, if you have not met Jesus, and you do, your life will never be the same. Something will change. I, every, everything. Let's say everything will change. So as we close, let's look at these two responses and ask yourself, which one more closely mirrors my response to Jesus. So does following Jesus make you uneasy because of what he might ask of you or what that might cost you? Are you determined to figure out and plot how to stay in complete control of your life and in turn worship yourself to your own destruction? Or are you intrigued by Jesus? Are you curious to know more about him? Do you desire to learn more about who he is? Do you know that you need help and direction in your life? And are you prepared to give yourself to him? If that's your response to Jesus, if that latter one is your response, the good news is your life will never be the same. And that's what we see from these two responses at the first Christmas. Let's pray. God, today we have seen two differing responses in this scripture in our time together today. And now the question is, what do we do with that? The question is, how do we respond to you? Will we be resistant 
and proud and even paranoid like Herod. I, I want control and I don't want to be asked to give too much or do too much. I don't know about this Jesus thing. Will we say no to Jesus and yes to ourselves? Or will we have the response of the wise men? Will our curiosity lead us to pursue him, to seek him out? And will our pursuit lead to worship that leads to a changed life? May we respond in the way of the wise men. God, thank you for all these that have been here today. Thank you for your word being preached. Thank you for the worship this morning. Thank you that your presence has been here in a mighty way. And I pray that we would leave excited, propelled, curious, and full of wonder at who you are this time of year, this Christmas season. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.